And now we're going to have our reading, which is a collection of Proverbs, which is on the back of your notice sheet. But if I could also get you to open up the Bible to 1 Peter 1, and I'll be reading from verses 18 to 25, and that'll be at the end. So if you keep your hands in that bit, then I'll go to that at the end. So the Proverbs on the back of the sheet. He who conceals his hatred has lying lips, and whoever spreads slander is a fool. When words are many, sin is not absent, but he who holds his tongue is wise. The tongue of the righteous is choice, silver, but the heart of the wicked is of little value. The lips of the righteous nourish many, but fools die for lack of judgment. Through the blessing of the upright a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked it is destroyed. An evil man is trapped by his sinful talk, but a righteous man escapes trouble. From the fruit of his lips, a man is filled with good things, as surely as as the work of his hands rewards him. Reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. He who guards his lips guards his life, but he who speaks rashly will come to ruin. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue that brings healing is a tree of life, but a deceitful tongue crushes the spirit. A man finds joy in giving an apt reply, and how good is a timely word. The heart of the righteous weighs its answers, but the mouth of the wicked gushes evil. Kings take pleasure in honest lips. They value a man who speaks the truth. A perverse man stirs up dissension, and a gossip separates close friends. The words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down to the man's inmost parts. The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. An honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. A word aptly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. Through patience a ruler can be persuaded, and a gentle tongue can break a bone. A lying tongue hates those it hurts, and a flattering mouth works ruin. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. He who rebukes a man will, in the end, gain more favour than he who has a flattering tongue. And if you turn to 1 Peter 1, I'll be reading from verse 18. For you know that it is not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but he was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, so, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the sea field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. This is God's word. Let me lead us in prayer.
as we begin together. Our Father, we thank and praise you that you, you speak perfect words. You speak the words that we need to hear, whatever the state of our heart, to encourage, to rebuke, to challenge, to comfort. Thank you that you're the perfect speaker of words. And we pray now that uh, we'd hear you as you speak. Your spirit would indeed do your work of applying precisely what we need to hear to our hearts so that we live rightly for you, so that we trust more deeply in you. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, words are obviously essential to us. We uh, apparently, on average, uh, a woman will speak 20,000 words a day and a man 7,000. I make no comments on that. Make of that what you will. Um, but words are obviously uh, important. Sophistication in speech, it's, it's one of the things that sets mankind apart from uh, the rest of creation. The Bible would say that we are image bearers of God. Part of that would seem to be in how we communicate. We, in an echo of God's speech, can both create and destroy with our words. We can create confidence. We can create reputation. We can create trust. Or equally, we, we can destroy those things just as easily. Words are very, we know that. Words are important. Now, we, um, uh, last week we started then thinking topically in the book of Proverbs. Spent a couple of months working our way progressively through the uh, first nine chapters of the book. But now we're spending a little bit of time picking out some of the major themes uh, that there are here. And today we come to words. After wisdom, the, uh, the most common theme that there is in the whole of the book. Now because we're topically looking at this, there are obviously at least two dangers. Uh, one is, I've sort of gone through the book of Proverbs and read some commentaries and this seems to me, what I'm going to give you, a reasonable summary of what the book teaches. But you've slightly got to trust me on that, which is never the ideal way. Much better in one sense, just to work through one passage. You can see what's there. But to do go away and read and think, see if you think this is a, a fair use of the book of Proverbs on words. It's the first danger. And the second one is even more obvious. I'm going to stand up here for half an hour and be a hypocrite because I'm going to tell us how to use our words and often then fail. Uh, even before I've got here this morning and certainly when I go home. We need to admit this is an area where we're all going to fail. And we'll revisit that at the end. But three things then. Uh, I've tried to summarize them on the back of your seat. I call it three things. If we're honest, it's about 20, but uh, let's see if um, anyone notices that. Three things then. We're going to look at the power of words, the wise use of words, and then the transformation of words. First then, the power of words. This is perhaps, is perhaps the most obvious. They can do three little, three different directions of the power of words. They can wound or heal a person. So chapter 12 and verse 18. Reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. It's very strong, isn't it? Reckless words pierce like a sword. And we in English use the expression, ooh, well that was a cutting remark which is similar, but not as deep as piercing. That's fairly aggressive, the damage they can do. Now, we all know, we've learned, we learn we learned at a very early stage that the, sort of the, the children's dog rule of sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. We know that's nonsense. We recognize that much better. Derek Kidner, whose little commentary on this I found terrifically useful, 
Puts it simply, what is done to you is of little account beside what is done in you for good or ill by words. And that's closer to the truth, isn't it? Words can have a much longer-lasting effect. Words can kill. uh, In our family, we watched about, about half an hour of Comic Relief when it was on last month on the Friday night, and one of the little snippets we saw, there was a five-minute clip about a lad called Simon. And uh, he's a 16-year-old lad, and his parents and his brother are talking about him. He's nowhere to be seen on screen, which instantly makes you a little bit nervous. And uh, they talk about what a vivacious, fun-loving character he was. He was doing well at school, all was well for Simon. Then he had a falling out with a girl at school. We didn't go into the details of that. And then the girl and her friend started attacking him on Facebook. Vicious. Why don't you throw yourself off the bridge? We wish you went and killed yourself. You are a wretched boy. All this sort of language. And he replied, on, he, he posted, please stop. I can't take any more of this. And they just, well, that was just red rag to a bull. Right, we've got him now. Let's push on through, push on through. And he committed suicide one night. Tragic. Tragic. Apparently that's not uncommon in cyberbullying now. What words do in you much more significant than what they do to to you on the outside? Or much milder, or or perhaps more realistic, a danger for for us in our setting. I can think of a a family, uh, two children, uh, a girl and a boy. I know the girl a bit better. We knew them growing up. And uh, uh, they grew up and... um, uh, twins, and essentially, in order to separate them or distinguish, I don't know, she was known as the the friendly, vivacious, lively one. And there was some truth in that. And he was known as the bright, studious one. And this sort of went on. And so it, this, there was some truth to that, but that got caricatured in the family as they're growing up. So he, she's the fun one. He's the sullen, he's the sullen clever one. Now you have that repeated year upon year, mealtime over mealtime. And now they are in their 40s. And she is a successful lawyer in the city. But doubts every decision she makes. Constantly thinks she's going to be exposed. Never speaks in company around a dinner table because, well, she's the, she's the not so bright one. He, meanwhile, is an IT computer programmer because he can't get on with people. He's bright, but he knows he can't deal with people or speak to them. This is in their family. No slurs upon you if you do either of those industries. Um, But just the sort of repeated overstating of some little truth, the caricaturing, has pushed those two individuals into a fairly unhelpful mindset. I know that the power of words is significant upon a person. Of course, there is the contrast here. Healing. In 12.18, the tongue of the wise brings healing. The very simple words from the right individual, whatever they are, I love you, and the the rest of the world can go hang. Or from the right person at work, good job. Who cares what everyone else in the firm thinks? He said, are the right words. Oh, they can do wonders for a person. So that they can wound or heal a person. Relatedly, second little thing there, they can build or destroy community. So chapter 11, verse 11, through the blessing of the upright, a city's exalted. By the mouth of the wicked, it's destroyed. 
Yes, you see, words can be used to create trust, form relationships, build community, or destroy trust, break relationships, divide a community. If you look at some of the obvious places in history, sort of Stalinist Russia in the 1950s, where everyone is terrified, to be honest. Can't tell the truth. What if a neighbor, what if a family member betrays a loose word? Similar in North Korea, where we've prayed for, for today, miserable. And society is just ruined and fractured, because you can't be open and honest in a place like that. Not just on a city scale, of course, it can happen between friends. So chapter 16, verse 28, a perverse man stirs up dissension and gossip separates close friends. Gossip. Gossip is quite a common theme in the book of Proverbs. But he takes it far more seriously than you or I might. Because we can fool ourselves. We just want to know a little thing. I see um, Bill and Brenda are a bit upset. Can you tell me how best to pray for them? You know, just a little, sometimes, you know, our hearts can be deceptive in that. And it's very tempting. I was, um, uh, chapter 18, verse 8 puts it. 26, 22 is the identical proverb. The words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down to a man's inmost parts. That's, that's terrifically vivid, isn't it? They just... Mm, it really hits the spot. Just the little choice morsels. Mm. I was at a, a lunch the other day, just around the corner from here, and um, I thought it was a sit-down three-course lunch. It, um, it wasn't, actually. It was one of these things, a room this sort of size, about, uh, I don't know, ten little tables, raised tables, with, you know, a dozen can- um, canapes on them all. So you wander around and you have a little chat with him over here and you sort of nibble for, you know, for five minutes. And you wander over here and you nibble for five minutes. And how many canapes equals a meal? I don't know. In my brain, it's about a thousand equals... <laughs> because they're so small and they just give you a little hit, don't they? I mean, if you have a three-course meal, you know what you're having and then you, you, you feel a bit full, but off you go. You have canapes and you just... And then all of a sudden you have to roll out the room. I'm just having one more. It doesn't do any harm. It's not a proper meal. It's not a meal. It does nothing. We have enough of them. Mm. And that's what the writer is saying here. Gossip. We think it's harmless. Just a little thing. I mean, no one will notice. It won't have any impact upon me or anyone else. Ruins. Ruins friendships. The obvious question Would I communicate this if the person I'm talking about was stood next to me? It's the obvious question, isn't it? It doesn't take rocket science. The story's told of uh, a woman who had been gossiping at church and uh, was convicted of this and so went to see the pastor and said, Pastor, I've been gossiping at church. I've I've told quite a few people about this individual and what they've been up to. What do I do? He said, very simple. Take a bag of feathers and go and place a feather on the doorstep of every person that you've gossiped to. Just go and do that and then bring the bag back to me here. Bizarre. Uh, okay, but she does that and puts out all these feathers and goes back to him. Pastor, I've done that. Now, now what do I do? Now just go and collect all the feathers in. It's a windy day. that have been blown all over the place. Ah. Just so your words. You can't take them back. That have just gone where you didn't expect them to. Be wary of gossip. 
So the power of words can wound or heal a person, build or destroy community. And then, you know, if you're just self-interested, be aware that uh, words can protect or ruin yourself. So uh, chapter 12, verse 13. An evil man is trapped by his sinful talk, but a righteous man escapes trouble. From the fruit of his lips, a man is filled with good things, as surely as the work of his hands reward him. Chapter 12, verse 13. The word trapped, it's just the word you'd use of a trap. The sort of thing, you know, you have your trap and you put your bait in, the whatever it is, the, 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 the vegetable, the meat, and the animal comes in and sticks his head in the trap and says, mm, thank you very much. And um, he's caught and he's trapped. And the rider says, well, your words will do that too if you're not careful. You'll just get caught out. Sometimes, I guess, dramatically. Yeah, the sort of a few good men mistake. You know, sort of the climactic court scene, you know, there's Jack Nicholson in the dock and um, Tom Cruise interrogating him. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Did you order the code red? Darn right, I ordered the code red. Whoops. And off he goes and he's locked up and he's thrown in prison because um, his words, whoop, they've just come out and uh, he's admitted. You know, you get het up a little bit and things come out and you're trapped. That doesn't necessarily need to send you to prison. More commonly, of course, we get a little agitated and we say things um, we regret them. Chapter 13, verse 3. He who guards his lips guards his life. He who speaks rashly will come to ruin. You can often walk away from a conversation and think, I said too much there. Now they realize I'm not as nice as they thought. Not as godly as perhaps they wondered. I've just, I've revealed myself. Be wary. So the power of words it can wound individuals, can destroy a community, can hurt yourself. So, you know, be careful. They're dangerous things or very useful things. That's the power of words. Let's have a look at then the, at uh, the wise use of words. One, two, three, five different ways I think the uh, the uh, the book would say here are using words sensibly. Words need to be honest, gentle, timely, few, and brave. Golly, it's hard work, isn't it, using words? Anyway, let's have a look. Five. Honest, then. Chapter 15, verse 4. A gentle answer turns away wrath. A harsh word stirs up anger. That's not right, is it? 15, verse 4, I'm sorry. 15, verse 4. The tongue that brings healing is a tree of life. A deceitful tongue crushes the spirit. Again, strong contrast, isn't it? Your tongue can be a tree of life, or it can crush the spirit. The tree of life... Well, that's back in the Garden of Eden. It's very strange. The, the writer says, you, you can create paradise with your tongue. You can do such extraordinary good. A community where there's honesty, one without pretense, without defensiveness, with nothing to hide. Honesty can produce Eden if it's rampant in a community. But deceit, deceit can, well, it can be crushing. The stats suggest, I got this, Pamela Meyer, Pamela Meyer wrote a book, Lie Spotters, I got this from her. The stats suggest we are lied to between 10 and 200 times a day. Disappointing, isn't it? White lies, they count. Um, apparently, strangers who lie to one another more, because there's no relationship and therefore you don't feel guilty about it, strangers will lie to one another three times in the first 10 minutes of a conversation. 
More worryingly, I don't know if this is true, these are all her stats, married couples lie in 10% of their interactions. What 10% are they? Do I look good in this, dear? Oh, yes. I don't know. <laughs> Have you done the washing up? Mm-hmm. I don't know what they are. I don't know what they are, but apparently. But we lie. We know we lie. But actually, knowing, you can, knowing you've been lied to is crushing in something that matters. You do feel betrayed. A relationship collapses. Certainly in our household, we, all, we always say, look, uh, to children, the, um, the mistakes, you know, we all make mistakes, we all do things wrong. The thing we really hate in our family is lying. Because it breaks relationships. They really matter. Lying is the worst of things that we do. It does break. It does crush. Or um, uh, honesty, it's valued by some. Chapter 16, verse 13. Uh, Kings take pleasure in honest lips. They value a man who speaks the truth. Yes, because a wise king doesn't just want to be puffed up with advice. They want loyal dissenters. Of course you do. People who will challenge you, improve you. I can't remember. It may have been someone here. I can't remember. Uh, Someone told me about once they had a game of golf with King Hassan II of Morocco. And uh, well, it was a business deal thing. And um, so he played golf on the king's private course. Obviously, to have a golf course in Morocco, you've got to spend a bit of money on getting the grass, etc. But this had been personally constructed for the king. First hole, dog leg right, fine. Uh, second hole, dog leg right. Strange. Third hole, dog leg right. At that point, he said, this is a very strange golf course, he said to one of the entourage. The, uh, the king tends to slice his drives a little to the right. And what? Half the course, dog leg right. I mean, how absurd. Pandering to the whims of a man. He's never going to, why would you bother improving your slice if everyone went perfectly where you wanted it? You just wouldn't bother. Why would you bother ruling a kingdom wisely if you're just going to be told every decision is a great one? No, how silly. How silly. Now, a wise king will take pleasure in honest lips. Or uh, uh, 24, 26, an honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. I just think uh, it simply means emotionally satisfying. It's like a smacker from someone you love. It's emotionally good. Or 26, 28, a lying tongue hates those it hurts. A flattering mouth works ruin. That's interesting, isn't it? A lying tongue paralleled with flattering. A little flattery doesn't do any harm, does it? Well, of course it can do. Being a school teacher, and um, you get a number of highly flattered children that had never met failure, really. You know, they'd come in, and mum and dad would say, oh, here's a Maximilian, he's very good on the violin, and uh, he'll probably get a scholarship to the school, and Maximilian pulls out his violin and kills the cat on the violin, and uh, you have to say, no. Oh, but Maximilian, he's very bright, you know. He's super, super bright, and uh, we expect him to go, and whatever it is, read law at Cambridge, and Maximilian is not so bright. And so, but all his parents have ever said is, you're brilliant, you're wonderful. And then life hits him and he's got no resources to cope because he's just been flattered. And reality has to dawn at some point. The sort of culture of my, you know, you can be anything when you grow up. I guess there's something encouraging children to have aspirations, but really, 
You can't be anything. It's got reality. So flattery, yes, it can harm. Of course it can harm. So honest words. Honest words, they're important. Gentle words. Now, uh, this is a bit, I guess, it makes sense, isn't it? Gentle words. Chapter 15, verse 1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And we all know that from just the daily interactions of uh, someone you bump into in the tube. You can either raise temperatures or calm down temperatures. Of course, you know, a gentle answer. We know that. This is, I don't know if you've come across uh, this very sweet uh, example. Uh, you know, there's the, the, the letters that Winston and Clemmy Churchill wrote to one another have been published. I mean, so it's a hoot of a read. Um, I mean, people don't, certainly husbands and wives, rarely write long letters to one another now. But here's a terrific example of being gentle, both in substance and in style. Uh, a letter that Clemmy wrote where not long after Churchill had become prime minister. She put it to him, I hope you'll forgive me if I tell you something I feel you ought to know. One of the men in your entourage, a devoted friend, has been to me and told me there is a danger of your being generally disliked by your colleagues and subordinates because of your rough, sarcastic and overbearing manner. My darling Winston, I must confess I have noticed a deterioration in your manner and you are not so kind as you used to be. With this terrific power, now he's become Prime Minister, you must combine urbanity, kindness, and if possible, Olympic calm. Besides, you won't get the best results by irascibility and rudeness. Please forgive your loving, devoted, and watchful Clemmy. Now, isn't that lovely? And I take it is probably more likely to get a positive result than, why are you so angry with all your colleagues? You know, a gentle word couched in, I love you, you're not quite as gentle as you used to be, because you can be super, super gentle. Gentle words. And look what they can achieve. Chapter 25, verse 15. Through patience a ruler can be persuaded. A gentle tongue can break a bone. That's a great example. Gentle. It doesn't hurt. It's nothing painful. And yet it can break the most hardened substance in our body. Over time, it can break a bone. Stubborn resistance over time can be changed. Isn't that encouraging? There's no guarantees here, of course. But the person, the client, the boss you're dealing with, and they're absolutely no, no, no. Perhaps over time, you can see a 180-degree turn by gentleness. Gently putting your case. I mean... Licking them to submission is kind of the picture, but it doesn't really work, does it? That's not so nice. But gently, 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 the bones can be broken. It's gentle. Uh, next little thing, um, timely. Wise words are timely. A number of things about this. So chapter 15, verse 23, a man finds joy in giving an apt word. Sorry, an apt reply. How good is a timely word? Or 25, 11. A word aptly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. There's a harmony. You look at it and just think, oh yeah, that works. There's a, an aesthetic pleasure. The two things match. There's a fitness. An apt word has a harmony between circumstances and what is spoken. They connect well. Now, to my mind, obvious question, how do you know what an apt word is? Often people say, oh, you know, what do I do in this situation? And you think, I don't know. I want to have a profound word for you, but I lack it. 
Well, I wonder if the, the clue actually is in the next little point. Few. Wise words are few. And perhaps particularly 1528. The heart of the righteous weighs its answers, but the mouth of the wicked gushes evil. That's probably the key, isn't it, to speaking an apt or a timely or the right word. You pause, you listen, you weigh a response, and then you give it. You also need to have a heart of wisdom, which takes a little bit longer. But that's making sure you've understood the scenario seems to be fairly key or intrinsic to it. Do you see the contrast? The mouth of the wicked gushes evil. That's a lovely, vivid picture, isn't it? You know, sometimes... Uh, uh, apparently you have hot days and you go to the kitchen and you want a glass of cold water. You just go to the tap and um, you turn on the tap and all, you know you want a glass of water but you are not concentrating and psh, the whole thing sort of sprays all over you. You want a nice glass of water and what you get is a sort of dousing all down your front. Particularly when you go to other people's houses, other people's taps never work like yours, do they? You know, it's always a bit embarrassing as well. You go to someone else's house, psh, it gushes all over you. And the writer says, well, that's what words can be like sometimes. Someone comes to you and wants a word of advice, and you spurt all over them. You don't give them what they need. You don't take time to listen. I mean, hasn't this been the lament of wives to their husbands throughout the centuries? You know, you don't listen. You just sort of burst out advice before you've really understood my scenario. You may as well have just got the garden hose and hosed me down. I didn't want that. I wanted you to listen and give me an apt timely answer. So, fewness, or, or a limited number of words, I take it, will help in order to give the right thing. Very practically, of course, with this uh, sort of uh, uh, fewness or, or not gushing words, we're in a culture which is just much more dangerous. We get an email, it's annoying, it's wrong, it's inaccurate, and the temptation when you're getting a bombard of emails is just to deal with it and just gush off in an email. I take it the writer of Proverbs would say there's an enormous wisdom in the God-given button, Saver's Draft. That's a God-given button. So you write your email, you save it as draft, and you come back to it a few hours later. You delete half of it and then you send it. And it'll do much less damage. Be careful, he's saying there. 1528. Weigh your answers. Don't just gush evil. And then last little thing under wise words, brave. Brave. You need to be brave in how you use your words. So 27 verse 5. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Sometimes we can see that something needs saying to this person. Someone needs to say to Winston that he's bullying all his colleagues and he's going to wind them all up. Something needs to be said here. But we fear the response if we do it. We don't want to be the one who says, I wonder if you're not quite as kind as you used to be and have the roar come back at us. So sometimes we, it's easy to think to ourselves, look, they've got a problem, but that's their problem. I'm not getting involved. I don't want to be the one who says anything. I, I, too much effort. It takes some bravery to use your words kindly, actually. But you see what the writer says, open rebuke is better than hidden love. Hidden love is useless. Winking in the dark in a pitch black room, who cares? Writing love letters you never send, they don't know. Open. To do it openly. 
Sometimes love is a rebuke. You've got to be brave to do that. So it's complicated, isn't it? Wise words. The wise use of words. Honest, gentle, timely, few, brave. And it's ne- we need to have a list because otherwise we can caricature. All of us will fail in different directions. So some of us are very prepared to be honest. You know, the sort of person who bounds up to you. I'm an honest sort of person. Oh. And so some of us are very prepared to be honest and blunt with people. But we can be honest in an obnoxious fashion. There's no gentleness. There's certainly no brevity to our words. We just pour it out. But others, others have no problem with saying very little. But are never brave. Therefore never apt. And so will never nourish anyone else with their words. It's worth thinking which way you lean. Yes, I'm very good at saying little. I never upset anyone, but I never do them any good. Which way do we lean? Wise use of words. Power of words, wise use of words. Last little thing, the transformation then of words. How are you doing? How do you do when you read these sort of list and these sort of proverbs? I mean, we're all hopeless, aren't we? We have our good moments. We can probably think to back to that day a few years ago when I, you know, put, someone told me I said something really wise and helpful. Um, but compare that to the sort of less than useful phrases which slip from our mouths or when we're silent when we should speak up. We all fall in this. I don't think I've particularly twisted the knife to use the phrase of wounding here. I mean, it's not hard to make everyone feel guilty about how they use their words. That's not difficult. But the other reality that the book of Proverbs will tell us is you you can't tame the tongue. You can't tame the tongue. You can't padlock it or just close your mouth and never speak. Because the issue is not really the tongue. The issue is the heart. Of course it is in the book of Proverbs. So some of these make it very, very clear. So chapter 10, verse 20. Look at the comparison that's made. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver, but the heart of the wicked is of little value. Do you see the tongue, heart? They're synonymous there. Or similarly, 1528, we've read it. The heart of the righteous weighs its answers. The mouth of the wicked gushes evil. Heart, mouth, they're synonymous there. Because the issue with our words is they flow from our heart. That's the issue. So if you really want to change your words so that you bring life and nourishment and healing to other people, then you need a heart that produces thoughts and therefore words of life and nourishment and help to other people. It's our hearts that need the work. That's what we had read at the beginning, that, that just little, a little section of chapter 1 of 1 Peter. Very striking. Peter can put it this way in uh, verse 22. Now you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you've sincere love for your brothers. Love one another deeply from the heart. How do you do such a thing? How do you love from the heart and speak words of nourishment from the heart? Well, verse 23. For you've been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Through the living and enduring word of God. How do we speak wisely? Well, the first step is, in one sense, a simple one. We need the Word of God to come and give us new life. 
we need God to send his word and the power of his spirit to come together and give us a new heart. To be born again will be the New Testament language. We'll never use our words very wisely, unless or consistently so, unless we're born again. That's the obvious first step. We need a word from the outside. We need a word from God to change us. And of course, that can only happen because of what Peter describes beforehand. That Jesus Christ has redeemed us. He's redeemed us from all our sin if we've trusted in him. Because while we speak imperfectly, while our speak, excuse me, our speech is wounding and damaging and is blemished and defective, he's never was. His was always perfectly honest, gentle, timely, a few, brave. And yet, he was pierced and wounded so we could be healed and blessed. Now that is the truth. It's the truth of all our sins, but it's the truth in our sins of speech as well. And knowing that is liberating because you and I will make mistakes even today in the things we say. We'll fail to say things we should. We will say things that really should have just stayed absolutely quiet. We'll fail. And once again we say, Jesus, you were wounded so that I can be healed, even in your speech. And that is of truth, of course, that's the gospel truth. And that'll change us over time. It'll change our hearts. If a gentle tongue can break a bone, then the gentle words of the gospel well, they can break us when we're hard and foolish and sinful in our speech, and he'll do that. As we listen to the words of Jesus, he'll change us. He'll change our hearts and change our words. It'll take time, but there'll be progress. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the practical realism and honesty of your word. We reread these proverbs and, well, we recognize them. We recognize our own behavior and patterns. We recognize our own temptations to be quiet and never do anything useful with our words, to be timid when we should speak up, or indeed for many of us to blurt when we should be quiet and say damaging things and to gossip. We recognize well the mistakes we make and pray that you change us for those of us who have trusted in Christ, that knowing that we have new life, you have given us new hearts, that will be a great encouragement. And then as we hear you speak to us, your words would change us. Slowly our sinful hearts will get broken down so that they more naturally, more instinctively speak words that are nourishing, encouraging, healing to our brothers and sisters, to those beyond Change our hearts so that you'll change our words, we pray. Amen.